Black Doctors Podcast, Season 6. Hello, welcome back to the Black Doctors Podcast. I am Stephen, your host. My co-host for today is Dr. Nate Jones. And we are privileged to have with us Dr. Amanda Calhoun, Dr. Kevin Simon, and Dr. Danielle Harrison. This week, we're continuing on our conversation from last week, talking about mental health, mental health in the Black community, and how we as healthcare providers have to carry a heavier weight oftentimes and how we navigate these difficult, challenging situations uh, in our patient populations, trying to right the wrongs and, and fix some of the disparities that we see in our healthcare system. Hope you enjoyed last week's episode. We had some fantastic feedback and we're excited to pick up where we left off. Thank you so much for the great reviews. If you haven't already, check us out on iTunes or Spotify where you can leave a review. You can leave a rating as well. I do want to thank Growth Dividends for their fantastic five-star review. Great podcast. Look forward to new episodes every week. As a pre-medical student, I enjoy hearing the medical students, residents, and attendings journey to where they are and their plans for the future. Thank you for that bit of support. And we look forward to reading your review in the future. We'll hear a quick word from one of our sponsors and then jump into today's episode, the second part of our conversation we started last week. This podcast is sponsored by Picmonic. In 2011, two medical students came up with the ingenious idea to combine medical education with unforgettable characters and ridiculously memorable stories. Featuring over 35,000 high-yield facts and graphics, Picmonic has helped over 600,000 students improve exam scores and perform better clinically. Picmonic has resources for pre-med and medical students, as well as other healthcare professions. Check out the show notes for a link to their website. Mention the podcast when you subscribe. With Picmonic, you can study less, but remember more. Uh, Dr. Harrison or Dr. Simon, how have you experienced burnout or protected yourself from the effects of burnout? Uh, I'll talk about the, the protective aspect. So since residency, I've been going to therapy regularly, unless I'm on vacation or the therapist is on vacation. And so that has been very helpful. Um, and so that started in Atlanta when I moved here. I've got a different therapist, but we still regularly meet. The writing aspect that Amanda just talked about um, has been, been particularly helpful. I think just generally because of the significant switch from uh, predominantly in-person to, you know, virtual, that actually has been helpful in part because as Amanda mentioned, like, you know, if you give me my isolation, I feel better. So I'm actually not on a day-to-day basis, like, in the hospital. Like, I'm in the hospital, but I'm not at the same time, right? Because I go to my office, I see patients virtually, I work with teams virtually. So I actually have time to myself um, to have my thoughts, to, to read, to do what I want to do. Um, one of the things that uh, uh, Amanda noted in terms of, like, the kind of impact that writing can have is one of the pieces I wrote, parents that were like interracial parents were emailing me to say like your piece like really described what my son's experiencing or having a daughter, like what my daughter's experiencing. And I think even I was like taken aback by the fact that, you know, here it is white parents, adopting a black son and obviously recognize something was happening or he was experiencing something and being able to kind of like characterize that 
for them from my lens, again, at least gave them a sense that, oh, wait, other people recognize this. And there's somebody who's thinking about this. Um, so that, that tends to uh, be renewing. So, so yeah, so therapy, writing, and yeah, just, just finding time to take your personal space has been helpful for me in terms of stemming off um, as much burnout as possible. And I will just say, yeah, again, that I have a therapist that I see regularly and luckily uh, you know, there's virtual visits, so it's easier for me to see her than it used to be. Um, I don't have to go take the train anymore. So, but yeah, I I also say that I'm working on self care, and my Love it. best self care that I have to really work on is setting boundaries. So, I'm really saying no to stuff I don't want to do, which I get better and better yet at every time um yeah but if i don't care about it i'm not doing it so then i don't have the stress or if i don't feel like i'm in here to like disrupt something that people are doing like i might say yeah i'm gonna do it but i know going into it that i'm doing this for my own like personal reason to do something for black people in the communities that i represent so and then really just doing stuff that i want to do and then finding ways to get paid for doing stuff that I want to do. So, um, you know, you'll see me talking, speaking, presenting, doing this interview, that interview, doing these things. And like, that's what I like to do. I like to figure out different approaches for teaching and for community education. And to me, that's not really work. Like that's what drives me internally. Like that's my own intrinsic motivation so I like to do that and I like to um, help others do that so I'm like okay I don't feel like writing this but Amanda would you like to write something because I know you can do it and then I know it's going to be as good as what I'm going to do so yeah I like to make these connections like somebody said like I'm the Al Sharpton of black psychiatry and I'll take that because I like that like you know I like to disrupt i like to build up the squad like we need that we need that sense of collaboration and community and that is how i combat these things like if i can't do something i'm going to spread the opportunity and like that makes me feel better and that makes me know that i'm going to be good to retire at 40 because i'm getting close so i know that i'm gonna um (laughs) gonna yeah you know i gotta I don't know. Y'all gotta, I have to have these goals for myself so that I can persevere and make it to the next day. So yeah. And if not really truly retire, but change the way that I practice and change the way that I, the space that I take up and the way I present myself and what I do, because I love my patients. I love working with my residents and my medical students, but everybody needs a break. And I think that I just the day by day, the day to day, I have to set like little micro goals for myself and boundaries. And sometimes I'm saying no, but I'm saying no in a way like not right, not in this way or no, I can't do it, but reach out to Kevin or Amanda or I can't do that this month, but I can do it for you on my own time in August or September, or I'm not doing anything for November, December, January, hit me up. You can be the first person on my February calendar. So things like that yeah. are how I try to, but I'm not that great at it. So I don't want to like, perpetuate, but that's what I try to do. Now, Steve, I, oh, I, I was going to say, I know 
medical students or pre-meds watch uh, or listen and watch. And just, I have to plug Morehouse School of Medicine, as well as just the field of psychiatry. Because uh, unlike some other fields, there are a lot of avenues that you can take with psychiatry, not just from like self-specialties, yes, there are many, um, but legitimately like how you can use your skill, right? And so I know that Danielle has had contracts with Google. I know that I have other colleagues that can, you know, help healthcare systems. Um, so, I, so, and this is something that if I didn't go to Morehouse, like I likely would have, have known in part because my like core mentors were Glenda Wren and Zinga Harrison, Sarah Vinson and Dion Metzger, all four black women who have their own specific niche that they do, both academia, right? Like Sarah has a book legitimately here. I think even uh, oh, Danielle's looking at it, right? So she publishes. Yeah, yeah both, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have that book too. But yet at the same time, uh, can, can, enter and navigate other spaces. So like Dion uh, is in the media world and Zynga has a startup, um, Eleanor Health, that if you look at their series funding has multi, 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 multi millions of dollars and is expanding. So I, so I just think, and again, and I, it just happened to me that I, I got paired with those four queens uh, when, I, when I went to Morehouse. Um, I, you know, don't discount like HBCUs for training um, and and don't discount psychiatry as a field because um, there's <sighs> so much upside that you can again have your own little niche. Um, so <sighs> so Danielle wanted to you know retire at forty. She, she definitely can do. Um, in, in our too field. late to go into psychiatry. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to tell you. I tried to tell you when you were a student. I tried to. I second what he said about psychiatry being so versatile. I think it's really cool because there's so many different things you can pursue as a psychiatrist, even like just clinically, like the balance between, as I learned, like get farther along in residency fellowship, you know, you can do everything from, you know, do research to, you know, do inpatient with the private practice on the side to, there's just so many different options. And then so many opportunities like to consult and, you know, work with companies and it, it's really, really cool. I mean, I, I feel like I'm, I feel so glad that I chose psychiatry because I don't like doing the same thing over and over again. Like I know some people like that and power to you, but that was why I did not choose like orthopedic surgery and no shade, but I almost, I, I cannot do like, <laughs> I cannot do like the same procedure, like, Anesthesia. I can't do repetitive stuff. I need lots of different <laughs> projects, different types of patients, different types of things. And so psychiatry lets me do all of that. I can write, I can consult, mm. I can see patients, I can do research. And I love navigating all those different fields. And I feel like psychiatry lets you, you're so, you can go to schools and talk to kids. Like there's just so much. You can talk to parents, you know. Um, I just think it's a really powerful field. And, you know, I, I want to get as many Black people <laughs> in psychiatry as possible. Another thing is because psychiatry has a level of subjectivity um, in it, all the more reason we need more black people. And I say all that to say, yes, you know, we are scientific 
field. But when you're talking about looking at a child and diagnosing them with ADHD or oppositional defiant disorder or depression, a lot of those symptoms overlap. And sometimes it's up to, a psychiatrist can look at a patient and diagnose them very differently. And that's really great, but also really disturbing when we see that Black children tend to be diagnosed with these disruptive disorders, much more so than white children. And there have been many instances in which I've said, why are you just giving this Black child an antipsychotic and saying that they're oppositional? Have you tried an antidepressant? Are you sure they aren't depressed? And so because of that, all the more reason we need experts in the field who are Black, who are coming from a place of lived experience and who really care about our Black patients and our Black kids and have an urgency to protect them. So but psychiatry is amazing. It's the best. Yeah. And I mean, while I am a child psychiatrist, <laughs> I definitely know there have been times where, you know, consulting on the weekend, and I know Danielle would know this, where you get an if I'm at a different hospital, you get an older patient who is black and the system just can't even recognize that the person is experiencing a mood disorder, right? Like it's it just like hard to break the mold of like, yes, older black women can get sad because just for a lot of people, it, it, like it's just, they just can't, they can't see that. Uh, um, season, and then also affective disorder. I mean, it could be it could be depression. It could be oh. seasonal affective disorder. Oh, okay. But I thought that was accurate. One of our one of one of our one of our cultural challenges is as minorities, we tend to accept certain types of mm-hmm. burdens, right? And so, if a older black patient tells me that they're mm-hmm. tired, right? I say, well, what do you mean you're tired? Like, are you getting enough sleep? They're getting enough sleep. Okay, are you eating right? They're, they're eating right. But they're still physically tired, mm. right? That could be the clue into, oh, wait a minute. Okay, that's a symptom of depression. And then I ask them about their work or I ask them about their engagement with their family members. And they have become more reclusive, right? So, like, the ways in which Amanda was talking about, like, the subjectivity, how do you take the time to hear what I know from my textbook and formulate it and characterize it such that it makes sense when I hear it from this particular patient, right? Um, it's just like Latin patients, again, may not necessarily say, I feel anxious. It's like, you know, it, it's just not a natural verbiage that they would use. So you have to be able to understand con- context of, well, okay, you get angry, all right, you don't like when people are accusing you of something, right? And then you link that to, oh, that's anxiousness. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I see that that happens quite a bit throughout the age spectrum of, of being able to contextualize what is it that I'm hearing and how do I make that make sense mm-hmm. to what does fit into the criteria. I mean, that's interesting because I actually never thought about like the subjectivity and, and through like a, a cultural lens, right? In a lot of ways, especially with psychiatry, the way you just described it, the idea of what is tired, like and, and what what fatigue looks like in yeah. the black community, and, and also how we internalize that to just be part of life in a lot of ways, right? In a lot of ways, we sort of say like we're just t- like, and especially in our training, like we. I feel like I've been tired since pre med bio one hundred and one <laughs> onward, and and to be honest, I, I've also 
grateful that you we also talked about you know the the use of therapy i mean i think I've, I myself also have, have a therapist and um, I've had a therapist off and on since, I, since I've been. And now we'll take a break to hear from our sponsor, TrueLearn. Hey, it's Stephen, host of the Black Doctors Podcast. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a minute to talk about TrueLearn. They are a sponsor of the Black Doctors Podcast and we're thankful for them investing in our mission. TrueLearn is a company that specializes in test preparation. They provide a data-driven approach to help students prepare for their examinations. They provide resources for those in the medical licensure exam process or the COMLEX, the USMLE, and even for physician assistants. And they also provide resources for subspecialty exam prep. Specifically for those in medical school, they offer individual NBME subject exams, smart banks, and they cover the rotations that include neurology, emergency medicine, psychiatry, pediatrics, surgery, OBGYN, family medicine, and internal medicine. Eight different subspecialties. As a special bonus for those of you that listen to the show, TrueLearn is offering a discount. To receive that discount, visit their website. When you sign up for one of their products, use the code BDPODCAST. So Black Doctors Podcast. There's also going to be a link in the show notes. Check that out. Everybody loves saving money. And now let's get back to today's episode. In a lot of ways, right? In a lot of ways, we sort of say like, we're just, like, and especially in our training, like we, I feel like I've been tired since pre-med bio 101 <laughs> onward. And and to be honest, I, I'm also grateful that you, you also talked about, you know, the, the use of therapy. I mean, I think I've, I myself also have, have a therapist and um, I've had a therapist off and on since, I, since I've been a pre-med. And I don't think we talk about that. And as, as physicians, I don't think we talk about how we use these resources and need these resources to get through what we've what we've had to experience. So I, I thank you for that. I think it'd be helpful for other people to hear that as well. Um, a lot of what we're thinking about with this is like the the use of resources, but also the barriers to those resources. And I don't know if you guys want to touch a little bit about that in terms of like what is as a either as a trainee or even as an attending, like what obviously the social stigmas, but other things that are tied to the idea of what these barriers are to, you know, accessing these level of care. Yeah, the the barriers. So I, I I call the mental and behavioral health system like a web, right? And some people know how to navigate that web. Some people get trapped in the web. Some people don't even know the web exists. And yeah. so I've had friends reach out to me and like have, you know, my cousin is experiencing something, and, and they think it's related to mental health. I'm like, okay, well, where's your cousin? And they're like. They're in D.C. I'm like, okay, that's great. I'm not licensed in D.C. But I might know Danielle, who might have a resident, who's in a clinic. And I'm like, okay, how do I get the patient to the clinic? What's the number? What, like, legitimately, what's the train stop? Um, Because you really will have to walk people throughout the entire step process. And let's just say that they actually get to... The, the the physician and and it so happens I have four like health insurance things from for a patient and I was trying to understand why am I like why am I getting this in within the system and come to find out there's a when a patient comes to the receptionist in the past the receptionist would say oh this is a behavioral health patient and would check some box to make sure it goes to the right payer right because you can have health insurance but oftentimes there's carve-outs, i.e. behavioral health is paid a different way. Hmm. That system of the checkbox happened to just switch recently. So what is happening, a lot of people are getting inaccurate bills because the health insurance is like, we're not paying this. This is behavioral health. And this is something that's not on the patient side. It's on our side. 
And so oftentimes I I will help patients, like, here's what you got to call. Here's what you got to say. Here's what you got to write. I have templates for all these things. Um, because if you don't, just trying to navigate it on your own, you undoubtedly will get lost. And, and I haven't even brought up, like, certain medications tend not to be covered. There's all these, like, specialty pharmacies for things like naltrexone. Um, so even when you're trying, you're, you're seeing the provider and, you know, Amanda says, hey, you should be on uh, Vyvanse because you failed this medication, you failed that medication. And she goes, puts it in. She said, yep, I put it in the pharmacy. Person goes to the pharmacy and they're like, wait a minute, uh, your insurance don't cover this. And you're like, well, what am I supposed to do? I don't know, call your doctor. So that way they fill out a prior authorization. So that it goes to a third-party payer who may or may not approve it. So it, it, it can be particularly complex. And now imagine that you're trying to navigate this web while simultaneously experiencing depression mm-hmm. or anxiety. It, it, you know, if you don't have a provider or some system helping you, um, I, I'm, I'm frankly not certain how you would actually get through it. Because even I, with very high patients, find it confusing to say, okay, this is the third connection you're putting me through. But I understand what it is versus someone who, again, depressed. I'm asking them to now stay on the phone for 45 minutes, not to talk to anyone, but literally to just keep, keep getting connected. Mm. Um, it, it is definitely a challenge. I'll stop there. Just to yeah. And I'll to add to that. So, yeah, health literacy is, in, of course, important. And that's something that I think a lot of times even Black doctors or doctors, period, don't realize like I happen to have been unexpectedly a patient last year and I was like wait my insurance doesn't cover this I gotta pay this because I was in the ICU I didn't want to go to the ICU but I gotta oh, pay no, this man. and I have this and what's, what's this deductible and all of this so health literacy yeah that's a barrier but what I try to emphasize for everyone is that you have to understand every structure that this country is built upon is mm. a barrier to health and when I say that, I mean everything from housing to food stability to mm-hmm. education to representation, what people look like who are providing the care for you. And if you look at just housing, for example, housing can impact your mental health, your health period, but your ability to own a home, the taxes, the value of your home, taxes inform the education, the schools, then that informs and makes decisions about transportation and where hospitals are and the hospital funding and resources. And then if you can't own a home and you're renting, the the power that eviction has and how that can lead to Mm. depression, anxiety, stress. So you're asking people to navigate these systems, to deal with these issues, and you're wondering why they're late for their appointments, if they can even get to their appointment, like all the things that are in place. So access is important, but so is everything else that impacts this, this access. And that's food, that's housing, that's education, that's policies that's what's allowed that's what's not allowed if you look a Mm. certain way the chances that you're given the opportunities so when we think about yeah like social determinants of health and healthcare disparities you have to think upstream and think about the policies and structures in place that have led to that 
the policies and structures that lead to who's accepted into um, medical school and who gets to go to which residency mm-hmm. programs, you know, things like that. So we got to, there's a lot of barriers. I was just going to say, I love the like public health, thinking about like what happens before and after the doctor's office, because, mm-hmm. you know, just like as a resident working in the emergency department, the psychiatric ED, we would always have just a, uh, two groups of patients that always st- stood out to me so much. One meaning the patients who are homeless and who, you know, they couldn't afford their medications, they decompensated and they need a place to sleep. They got kicked out of their shelter or the shelter closed or the, or, you know, whatever. And they're just in the emergency department, just sleeping. And we just let them sleep, you know, like, and they literally will sleep for like three days, waking up to like eat, go to the bathroom, drink something and they're out. And it's like, the housing instability is just, it's so upsetting and it's so sad that clearly there are some patients that the ED has become somewhat of a shelter for. And the other group of patients that we tend to see are, you have a pretty big group of like patients who are intellectually disabled who come to the ED because they don't like their group home. And, you know, it's interesting because I had never gone to some of these group homes, but from being in the emergency department, I have to kind of like learn more about the group homes they come from. And I'm thinking like, man, I wouldn't want to live in this group home either. Like what types of like resources and like what kind of housing is this? So we get just, you know, patients that just don't want to go back there or sort of stuck in the ED until we can kind of convince them to maybe go back and go someplace else. And that really has a lot more to do with their, their housing and their environment. So I think, you know, I don't know what the, the answer I think is, always thinking about all those things. And I, mm-hmm. I definitely feel like there's so many barriers to helping our patients when it comes to optimizing their mental health that are way outside of the bounds of hospital or clinic walls, but super important. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say um, what man is talking about. So like at, at Morehouse and I know at other residency programs, you know, we have an ACT team or assertive community treatment team where you go into the person's group home around town and and you really see them in their living space uh, and you're walking truly with your doctor's bags, uh, doctor bag and and have their medications because the nurse is present. And I think that that was one of the more formative experiences I had in training um, because it's very easy to have someone come to the emergency room or come to your clinic and you ascribe all these things that they should do, uh, but then to see what their living experience is. Then you actually see all the challenges related to even the smallest of recommendations that you actually might have. Um, So the idea of like, oh yeah, you should walk 30 minutes per day or or you should eat Mm -hmm. fresh vegetables, yet they're in a food desert location. Again, psychiatry is the field that, that forces you to think about social and political determinants of health unlike any other, because it, it just undoubtedly is going to impact your patient's ability to live their optimum like life, right? It's not even about like, oh, take my kid. It's like, I need you to be functional for yourself. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I agree. I appreciate the time that we've been um, talking about this. Glad we will do part two. If there's time, there's all. Oh yeah, there's always, always, there's always time. Exactly, always, always part time. two, three, four. <laughs> well, we can I um also say so. Thank y'all for having us, and also um the 
Black experience is not just a misery experience. I want to say that, but, you know, we talk a lot about the trauma, the generational trauma, um, the stress, the depression, the PTSD that's passed down through generations and we what we have to live with currently, but also know that there's strength in the collaboration and the networking that we have. So we're out here. We are out here. Uh, people say that we're like black unicorns, black psychiatrists, and in a way we are, but we do exist. So if you do the best part, I think, about these organizations and being a leader in these organizations is that we have this connection and that we're able to, I'm able to say, like, yes, I can text Sarah Vincent and that's somebody I want to be like when I grow up. Or I can email Amanda or Kevin and, like, can you write this for me or can you see somebody in Boston? Or like Kevin was saying, like, we have that network and we do take care of each other and that does bring some joy. Um, so... That is a part of the reason why I created and continue to promote stuff for at Black Psychiatry because we need uh, to know that we're there. A lot of times, like I've had medical students and even white attendings who've reached out to me and said, can you talk to my Black medical students? Because they've literally never seen a Black psychiatrist and they're interested, interested in going into psychiatry. But it can be isolating. So just know that if you are interested in psychiatry, like we are here, we are, we do build a network, we do support each other. Um, and that is part of the joy and part of the Black excellence that continues to thrive. So while we did talk about all the things that there are weighing on you, just know that there is a, um, a point of joy, of excellence when you become a member of this group, whether you're a Black doctor whatever specialty you choose, but specifically for Black psychiatrists, we've got you. And this is what we do. I have mentors, peer-to-peer mentors. Um, I have my students, my squad, but I have my senior season psychiatrists who've been here, who know, and they can tell you how to navigate and what you need to do when you're building your own identity on your own identity and trying to figure out how you fit and what kind of work you want to do in this world. So I just wanted to add that. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's uh, perfect. This has been incredibly enlightening. I know it's going to be beneficial because, like was mentioned multiple times before, we need to build this pipeline of Black psychiatrists. We need folks dedicated to the mental health of our community. I know you're going to help a lot of people with this. You guys are welcome anytime. Nate, any uh, closing no. thoughts? I, I really appreciate the conversation. I think there's so much more we can talk about and we'll definitely reach out if we to delve in even deeper with this. But thank you for your time and, and I, I hope this really uh, benefits all of our listeners. So, Absolutely. Doctors Calhoun, Harrison, Simon, thank you so much for joining us. We will have all of their contact information in the show notes. We'll also include some examples of the, their work because they have published some amazing, incredible pieces in the New York Times and the New England Journal of Medicine in JAMA. Cannot thank you enough. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. For sign out, I just wanted to leave you with a word or a topic or something to consider as you work clinically. I have returned to fellowship, yes, after practicing for four years in the Navy. I am back now to complete a critical care fellowship, and I've been immersed back into the world of academic medicine, back into the world of you know, being a trainee. I was in the neuro ICU for the first month and I've just finished my first week in the medical ICU. So it's a lot of perspectives. 
It's been interesting to see the different perspectives from the medicine side, from the neurosurgical side, from the anesthesia side, general surgery. And I'm reminded of one of the things I learned when I was, I think, an intern. We had a fantastic trauma surgeon that worked in our surgical ICU. And he would always say, let's stop for a minute and assume that everyone is reasonable. And that's in the context of, you know, you get a crazy uh, consult or the consulting service gives you some answers that aren't necessarily helpful. And oftentimes there is a bit of miscommunication that can occur in these situations, but assuming the best in people, assuming that we're all there to do what's right for the patients, to help our patients heal and get better, stop for a second and just think, you know, what perspective does the surgeon have, does the intensivist have for recommending whatever they are, recommending for doing the things that they're doing? From that point, you can initiate conversations and just simply ask those questions of why. Doing so contributes to a team dynamic. It allows you to learn. It allows us to work together to take care of the patients that we see from day to day. I've used that uh, more times than I can count in the last couple of years that I've been in practice. Hopefully that was helpful. Thanks again for tuning in to Black Doctors Podcast. We're here every Monday because representation matters.